0: But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult it's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality hello everybody welcome to this new podcast of the american journal of public health today we are going to talk about men and cancer with our guest Derek
1: Griffith, please, Derek, introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, first, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm a professor at Georgetown University in the School of Health. I'm a professor in health management policy and in oncology, and then also I co-direct the Racial Justice Institute and direct the Center for Men's Health Equity. And outside of there, I'm the chair of a group called Global Action on Men's Health.
2: Very well involved in men's health. That's just incredible. So why don't we start by giving us some idea of the work that you're doing in terms of men and cancer and why cancer?
1: Well, we know cancer is, you know, both in the U.S. and globally is one of the two leading causes of death, you know, particularly since we know most men, most people die of noncommunicable diseases. Mm -hmm. And so cancer is typically one of those leading causes. We wanted to particularly look at cancer since there's been so much attention to prostate cancer, HPV, and just other mm-hmm. health issues mm-hmm. like that. And think about, in this case, how are men present represented in those pictures, in those issues, and mm-hmm. so forth. We know that men have a higher burden of disease, whether it's incidence or mortality from cancer. And so it's trying to think about, you know, how do we need to, what is the policy response to that? How do we need to capture, or how are men captured in there? And how do we better respond to that? For us commissioning, the the work of the report specifically, it's called Gone Missing that was commissioned by the Global Action on Men's Health, was led by Professor Natalie Leon and Chris Colvin. They really did the report, and my colleague Peter Baker and myself are the other co-presenters on this particular presentation that we did on Sunday.
0: So, Derek, tell us which cancer are we talking about, because I think we associate men with lung cancer, because they used to smoke much more, mm-hmm. prostate cancer. Which are the, the cancer you're particularly concerned about?
1: Yeah, in this case, we were just looking at cancers just broadly. So it was really what cancers were coming up in the documents, and then were there sex disaggregated data? How did they talk about gender as a determinant? How did they think about that? So it was really whatever cancers were represented in those particular documents. You know, my purpose is my work. I'm particularly interested in the cancers that tend to be the ones that men have highest rates of and that are sort of the leading causes of cancer death. And that would be lung cancer, prostate, colorectal, is probably the top three.
0: Is there, for example, breast cancer? It's, it was a, a rare cancer in men, but I was wondering with the death of despair, you know, the, the increase of alcoholism, et cetera. do we see a change there? In
1: specifically breast cancer? Yeah, is there a rise in breast cancer in men? I'm actually not sure. Yeah, we haven't really looked at that because the report that I was referring to is really a global report, so we mm-hmm. haven't, We need to do one that is actually specific to the U.S. and look at how are men represented in those documents as well. And one is just, it, are the data there for men? And then the other question that we were asking is, is how is it discussed? How is it described when particularly men are doing worse than women in these cases.
2: Let me just ask a question because you brought up data a couple of times do we have an issue with data disaggregation in terms of kids? We often talk about data disaggregation in terms of race and ethnicity, so it's very interesting to hear that by health conditions, by gender. Can you talk about that?
1: Absolutely. So this is a common problem, and it's it's actually something I'm also working on with the Office of Research on Women's Health within NIH, mm-hmm. that we don't tend to sex disaggregate data or look at data or have present data by sex and gender consistently across different health issues, its mm-hmm. not just cancer, but just across health issues, we don't tend to sex disaggregate and certainly don't look at the intersections of race and ethnicity mm-hmm. with sex and gender as a way to better understand which of those populations are doing worse within there. So unfortunately, most of the race, of, this is kind of one of the other things that we do in our center for um, men's health equity is really look at, well, how do we better understand what some of those issues are if you were to actually, and what is being masked actually by not looking at, say, race and ethnicity data by sex, at least starting with that, that we tend to present those separately. We have a line for male and female, then we have a separate line for different racial and ethnic groups, but usually we don't cross them, so you don't actually see which groups of men and women are actually doing worse. And so that certainly tends to move into the cancer space, but we definitely see it just more globally in other health issues as well. So we're actually doing another report on mental health, on primary care, and other issues that will be Mm -hmm. forthcoming.
2: I'm just fascinated with this because, you know, I know a lot of data warriors. I think of myself as a data warrior. But I never really thought about the inequity that you're facing in men's health because we're not generating the data. Now, one of the things I wonder about is often our data comes from treatment, you know, those who come in, especially, you know, using primary care, and then go in less. So is the problem that men don't utilize services enough, and therefore, if even if we want to use the data, we have to say, not powered, or is it that we're just not paying attention to men's health?
1: So now you're really trying to get me in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) The standard way that we present data is fundamentally problematic. I think that's the first part I'm saying. Typically, we don't present data that looks at the, or present regularly the intersection of race, ethnicity, and sex mm-hmm. in, in most of the data, since those are usually the first two tables that you usually see, or two lines in the two rows in the tables that we typically present. Mm-hmm. We don't have a standard of presenting them together. And so you don't see which groups are actually doing worse and faring worse in those things. So that's the first. It's not a lack of access to the data for, in, the, mm-hmm. in a more general sense. It's a lack of actually presenting the data in a way that you can actually see who's doing worse and who's right. faring better. The second part there is the issue, and there's always sort of the conundrum of why men don't go to the doctor, do men go to yes. the doctor at, at lower rates than women. From what I understand from, from various systematic reviews, it's a little bit more nuanced. Where the difference is greatest, let me just say it that way, tends to be in terms of men going to the doctor for preventive care for well-person visits. Yeah, Women tend to do that at far higher rates than men, and that usually drives the gap that we typically sort of see and that we sort of have the understanding of why there's a difference. When men and women are symptomatic, women don't go to the doctor either at the rates that they're supposed to. The gap is far smaller if there is a gap at all. The gap that we usually talk about and that we usually think about being a huge difference is really in terms of preventive care. For
0: me, there's still a paradox there because uh, men... Are supposed to be the better understood people by medical establishment, which is essentially male or was until now. So how come is there this disadvantage of men when it comes to cancer?
1: So I would be rich if I could answer that fully. <laughs> I could be rich and retire, but I, can, I don't have the answer yet. So I think male bodies have been the standard, but men have not, in their totality, have not been the standard. So, whereas we have male bodies, male biology have been the standard. We haven't usually added the lens of gender. We haven't added various social determinants. We haven't added other, included other things that speak to their identity, their experience, and the structural conditions that shape who they are. Those are the things that tend to be missing and that tend to be the primary drivers of men's health that are not incorporated into that picture. So we miss a lot. Yeah, we have a better understanding of male bodies and potentially how they work relative to women. But we don't have an understanding of the things that drive which groups of men tend to fare worse, which groups of men tend to have particular health issues, and the basically the gene-environment interaction and other sort of contextual things that are shaping how male bodies are responding to different things.
2: This is really interesting to me because it seems like, based on the question you were asking, Alfredo, is there's interesting advantages and there's interesting disadvantages And typically, when we talk about very negative things, stigmatized things like who's a substance abuser or, you know, very negative, we have a lot of data on men and we focus on men because remember, we had to kick the door open for the women to come in for substance abuse treatment. And when we talk about good health, it seems like the men are the archetype of what the body weight should be, what the dosage should be. And what you're introducing to us is kind of a really nuanced definition here of what the real advantage and disadvantage is by gender. Can you talk a little bit about when we add race and ethnicity, how that plays out in terms of these differences?
1: Yeah, so we're getting into a a really important area, but let me step back for a second. So one of the things that is, particularly for me, that makes this a really important and interesting scientific issue is that men have structural advantages in pretty much every area of our society. Mm-hmm. There's so, starting to be some questions, you know, Richard Reeves and his work and his book recently, you know, really starts to document that men aren't necessarily as advantaged in education as we once thought. Right. We certainly still have all the structural political advantages in terms of income, you know, socioeconomic status, all those kinds of things definitely tend to advantage men. All the political things definitely tend to advantage men. Men are in higher ranking positions and, and mm-hmm. so forth. Make mm-hmm. more on the dollar than women and so forth. The fact that men's health doesn't benefit from that, to the paradox that you were mentioning, is part of what makes this a right. particularly fascinating scholarly problem. When you add the layer of race, one of the things that I've been particularly interested in is how do we explain why the US has such a poor health profile collectively relative to the rest of here high income countries? Mm-hmm. And how do we explain the rates of differences, whether we call them inequities and so forth? How do those factor into that picture? If you start to disaggregate, we know that from the work of like David Satcher in that famous paper, What If We Were All Equal? I think it was 2005. Satcher
2: and Wolf. Yes, Yes, yes,
1: yes. But he talks about it in there and it's kind of, it's hidden in the abstract and in other places where it was really men in middle age and infant mortality, which was also driven by the males, that were really driving the inequities between blacks and whites between that 1960 and to 2000 period that he was talking about. The improvements were largely seen in that of black women. You didn't see those same things, and it was really that those subgroups of males that we saw, and particularly black males that we saw, that were really driving the racial gap that we saw in the United States. You could think about other data that would basically see the same thing. COVID was very similar. It was really driven by men had higher rates of dying from COVID, even if they didn't necessarily have higher rates of necessarily contracting COVID. They were certainly more likely to die from it. And certainly most of those were black and brown men that were dying at much higher rates. And so it's understanding, like, how do we understand this intersection that you're talking about and how do we make sense of that in such a way that we need to really deal with it? So it does start to get more to the the, the meat of the intersectionality as channeling my, my inner Lisa Boleg um, as best I can, but, which is a, t- a tall challenge. That itself, is, but, that is. but it's really getting at the heart of what does this actually mean for how, how people are experienced structurally, how they're experienced individually, how those kind of factors are fitting together. But all of those pieces of how do we make sense of that has to come into that picture, both looking at the individual and the structural experience and how those are interconnected.
2: So remember the Case and Deaton work that talks about death and despair. So what we have are these individual white men who, because things started to change for them in society, we start seeing their loss, their death increasing. Um, In one of the sessions I was in, I began to talk about this notion of the American dream and saying for black men who have high income, high education, you still see the stress, you still see early mortality. Same thing in terms of Latino men after they've been here. Not when they first come in as immigrants, but yes, they've been here. Can you talk about, is there a parallel that we're seeing by race and ethnicity potentially in terms of mortality
1: in men? It, it always depends on the comparator. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the first part. We know just when you're looking at males versus females that you know male organisms tend to die at higher rates and, and earlier than female ones. When you then start to disaggregate and look at it, again, by race and ethnicity, yeah, we do tend to have these patterns, and then you can start to subdivide well within, say, black men are you talking about black American men? Or are you talking about those from Africa? Are you talking exactly. about those from the Caribbean? Are you you exactly. know, all of these different types of intersections. We don't usually look and lean into the intersection with ethnicity. And then you're starting to talk about black Hispanic men, you know, who speaks Spanish, who primarily speaks Spanish. There are all these sort of subgroups that we tend to sort of separate out. And so to get to interventions, we have to be able to sort of subdivide these things and identify which of those groups are doing worse? Because typically one of the things that I think we have learned is that trying to improve the health of a population in mass tends not to really work. Exactly. We tend to have, you know, what the journal has published before, sort of the um, vulnerable population or those kind of issues where you have different groups that are structurally disadvantaged that when you have a policy that is supposed to be one size fits all, that it actually tends to exacerbate disparities in some cases as opposed to shrink them. So men are one of those groups that it's again it's counterintuitive given the structural advantages that we have but that can sometimes those those structural advantages can lead men to have worse health outcomes or just not benefit. So it's not that men are not benefiting they just don't benefit as much as women do in some of these cases and so women have kind of left men behind because we've <laughs> kind of they just have increased and done better at higher rates and and more quickly. And we could look at, are there policy reasons for that? And that was, you know, to the to the original question of the, the global men's health policy, that was kind of the impetus for it, is thinking about what are the policy response to these things that are, again, these patterns are not new. Like, we're not talking about something that is a surprise to anybody. These have been the patterns that we've seen largely for 100 120 years where men are doing worse than women. It's just that the difference has actually grown significantly over that time period. And we haven't really had a policy response that considers why are males that doing worse than women and why has that difference grown since 1900 and going forward. And so
0: your last answer you know, touches something that is very dear at the heart of the journal, which is health monitoring, data collection. Because what you're saying is that we need really disaggregated data in order to answer those questions, and this is the first step towards finding solutions, you know, I understand. So what would you suggest? What would be the optimal way of collecting this data, moving ahead, and being able to answer those questions?
1: I think we've got to collect data with the intention of using it for intervention. And I say it that way because usually we, we disconnect and utilize data sources that were not designed to answer questions or give you insight into why certain groups are having poor health outcomes that give you insight into the psychosocial and structural mechanisms that are driving the health inequities that we see. If they're included, they're usually add-ons. They're not sort of thought of, and we're usually looking at data that was never designed to inform health policy, health direct, you know, inform interventions at any type of level, and certainly not for that. So I think it's starting with can we start to develop and design data sources that actually have those variables that start to capture various types of structural inequity? I mean, we're I'm focusing on how to think about gender, masculinity, manhood in terms of men's health, but that only really is thinking about certain groups of men for whom those identities are important to them. For other groups of men who may... Be more minoritized through other aspects of who they are—who may be gay, bisexual, trans, and so forth—or just you know members of the military, members of a strong faith community. Those aspects of their identities can be much more important in terms of finding the what's their why or why they want to be healthy in the context of an unhealthy environment and in, con- in space or where they live, or just a structural condition that is not really designed for them to be healthy. So we have to figure out what are the things that individuals are important for them to be able to give us a better sense of how to understand what is important from them from their perspective as their individual sort of identities that shape how they're going to respond to the environment where they live and where they live, work, play, and on so forth. But also what are the structural conditions that will help us understand what is constraining them at a population level and so it's really thinking about those things at multiple levels. I know there are multiple efforts to now try to measure things like structural racism. We have some colleagues now who are also trying to measure structural sexism. Like all of those things need to be brought to bear in all of these different data sources and studies. And I'm sure there's, I don't know what the equivalent to those for gay, bisexual, trans populations and so forth, but there would be, a, what, what would that look like to measure those kind of things at a structural level? as well would be something you'd want to bring in at minimum to understand these. You have to think about which are the priority populations, which are the issues that you're really focusing on, and build those into the data sets, build those into the things that you're starting to guide to use to guide policy practice and the interventions that you're trying to create.
2: I want to build on, on your question, Alfredo. What public health typically is able to use would be surveillance data. And so what we see is considerations of things like nativity, ancestry. That seems to be where the push is going. The other place, though, that we typically can collect a lot of data is also in our mortality records. Again, that's kind of, you know, a public health place. So if you had the ability to talk to NCHS about mortality... What would you want to see as additional things in those data records?
1: I would actually start to work backwards from where you started, which was these data are normally collected for the purposes of monitoring, evaluation, and tracking, and it's a different type of purpose if you're trying to use, we're trying to use it for a purpose that it wasn't intended. You know, monitoring is just tracking how is it going versus how do you actually explain it to fix it. And those are not—they're not synonymous.
2: I'm going to agree with you that that's true.
1: Well, I'm just—but yeah. I'm
2: going to, in reality, tell you this is what we have in public health now, and to build what you want, maybe ten years off, or twenty years. So help me now. I want to help no, no. you no. not have any extra men die. So
1: I, I'm agreeing with guy, you. I'm just—I'm just, I'm I'm just starting with real. where we are. No, I'm—I'm I'm, I'm completely 100% <laughs> in agreement with you. But I'm just—I want to highlight that this is. Where we are is part of the challenge.
2: Yes. now that, that That's yeah, where I'm just starting, yeah. that we
1: have these data sets, mortality data again. It's not designed for the purpose of informing policy, practice, and intervention. So it's just starting with the point that we have a misalignment in the, in the tools that we use to get to a particular solution and outcome, and that part of that, we have to fix those tools. So how would we fix those tools would be to ask questions that help to illuminate We haven't, I think, come to professional agreement about how to measure structural racism, for example. We would want to figure out how to actually do that. Can we actually start to incorporate that into these data sets that are being primarily used for monitoring and evaluation that can then be incorporated into these types of data sets? So it can serve the dual purpose of not just monitoring and evaluation, but can actually also serve the purposes of informing and monitoring intervention policy and so forth. Same thing with mortality data. Can we start to look at things like how would you measure structural sexism as one of those things that we know that those data from Patricia Holman and others that those kinds of things do affect people's health in a way? I would love to see more nuanced look at even the socioeconomic variables. We tend to have the way I used to teach it. This hopefully has gotten better, but I don't think it has so much. <laughs> is that in the U.S. we tend to do better with collecting data on race and ethnicity and or to our European counterparts on collecting data on socioeconomic status, socioeconomic position, class, and different measures of well, in measuring things like position. wealth and income and so yeah. forth. So I would think that at minimum, we would want to sort of beef those things up to be able to be able to look at how those economic factors and drivers are shaping the kinds of interventions that we would want to include. So the structural factors, but also looking at some of those metrics um, of things like socioeconomic status, socioeconomic position, would be, I think, where I would admit, initially start. The third place I would go is to look at, are there ways to understand how identity factors into that? So, you know, there has been a very robust, you know, body of research on race and ethnicity in terms of identity, racial and ethnic identity. But we want to look at how do those factors actually shape what people prioritize in terms of their health? How do we think about where, the way gender factors into that? How do we think about the way that, again, people across the gender spectrum think about what it means to be themselves, and how those things factor into it? So that would be an ideal, but I would think I would definitely start with socioeconomic status, socioeconomic position, and looking at structural factors like race, ethnicity, and gender, and how those factors get played out at that level.
0: Thank you, Derek. I'm going to give you my bottom line, and then I'll give it to, uh, to Vicky. I think you're an inspiring researcher. I think the the topic, which didn't inspire me too much when we started, is now a very interesting topic because uh, uh, you look at it in depth, in its complexity. And I think you're right to keep the goal ambitious and to try to push us to reach them. So thank you very much for those insights.
2: Let me also thank you because I think that as people listen to these podcasts, my hope is that change happens. So I think the way in which we've interrogated this issue of men's health is really informative. I'm still going to push in terms of, like, these are the structures we have. You know, I'm hoping that, you know, Healthy People 2040 will talk to you about setting targets and what it means to, you know, target certain interventions since you're really focused on interventions. And at the same time, my hope, based on the things we're talking about, is that we can begin to tweak some of the public health systems. They won't be perfect, but at least what will happen is it will allow us to have the kind of substantive data To make the case to get this intervention, forward-looking data that you're requesting. So, I'm going to hope that I'm going to put my bet on you and hope that you know you're able to get these changes faster than I can get them, particularly in the public health surveillance system. So, together, I think with the journal, with you know what all we're doing, I think that you know let's all hope that men's health will be better.
0: And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality integrated education a reality. And so today we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality.